Good morning, North Place Church. It is so great to be with you, even in these circumstances. How are you? I know we can't exchange answers the way we want face-to-face, but I really do want to ask that question today because I don't assume for a second that everything is okay. You have experienced some significantly troublesome times lately, and we just want you to know that you, your family, your communities have been on our hearts, been on our minds, and literally in our prayers since the moment these troubles have uh, occurred, and even before that. And speaking of prayers, and in light of the recent turmoil affecting all of us, I just want to take a moment today to look at a significant prayer that Jesus prayed at a similar time in his life. We're going to be looking at the, the book of John in chapter 17, and the reason we're looking at this portion of scripture, I really felt led to do this, is that its context evokes, I believe, the same feelings, concerns, and literally the wide variety of decisions that so many of us have faced in the last few weeks. And I find that the scripture is so inspiring that this story takes place only a few hours prior to Jesus going to suffer and die on the cross. Now, I don't have to ask you to exert your imagination very much when I ask you to imagine what it would feel like to face a threat. Since we just returned from Durban, our family had to go back to the United States uh, to apply for our long-term visas, which we successfully gained and is allowing us to return and be with you for the long term, and we rejoice in that. While we were there, we watched the news. We watched as, as the events began to unfold, and, and information was coming in so, so, so broken and, and fragmented. We couldn't make sense of it, but I can't imagine what it seemed like for you to be here on the ground in real time watching these events come out of nowhere and begin to build and cross a line of incredulity and just can't believe that it actually went to the point that it did. But we've been hearing these stories of top people, literally by email, phone call, and then as we've arrived and began to meet with people and catch up on what has been happening, we've been hearing these stories of people in our community describing the shock, the fear, the increasing worry that their homes, workplaces, their possessions, their very lives, security, and safety were being threatened. It's probably not easy to put into words the mix of thoughts, emotions, and responses that you've experienced If we were to ask you how you're doing, it would not be surprising at all for you to respond, I really don't know, and that's okay. But I'd be curious to know what you were praying for in those moments. I'm curious to know what I would be praying for in those moments. And it's interesting to note that what Jesus prays in this portion of Scripture isn't anything like what we would probably pray in those circumstances. I I imagine, and I try to put myself as best I can, although I, I know I fail miserably, that If I was faced with the circumstances of this last few weeks, that if I was in danger, I would pray for safety. If I was being threatened, I would pray for protection. And if I was expecting to be hurt in any way, shape, or form, financially, physically, emotionally, relationally, I know that I would be praying for deliverance. And I think that each of us would probably pray in similar lines. But it's funny, when we look at Scripture, when Jesus was feeling all these emotions, faced with knowing uh, uh, he was about to be crucified. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew what w- it would be like and what it would feel like. And the weight of all of it was, was pounding his senses. When Jesus was feeling all these things, he didn't pray at all the way we would pray. Now, please understand, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for safety. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever pray for protection, deliverance, provision. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are encouraged, we're directed, we're commanded to pray for and depend upon God for all these things. But what I am saying is that in times of great fear, our focus tends to get very narrow. 
Like Pastor Randy said in his message last week, and I would highly encourage you to go back and watch that message again, he mentioned that we will tend to go into fight or flight mode. When threatened or endangered, we naturally think of ourselves and our own circles. We fear loss. We loss our freedom, loss of our resources, loss of opportunities, loss of our security, and much, much more. And the unavoidable reality is fear is a great instigator of all sorts of evil things. And this is where we, as Christ followers, need to be attentive because nothing divides like fear. I, I returned to the United States. I, I recognize that politically, fear is being leveraged on both sides uh, to move people to their point of view, to their way of thinking, to their preference of behavior, and frankly, to motivate them to contrib- contribute money to their cause. And we see fear in many ways dividing uh, a nation that literally its motto is one nation undivided. And so we see that fear is a great divider. And how do I know this? Because scripture tells us that Jesus saw it coming and he preemptively prayed for us in this way. But his prayer has less to do with our circumstances and more to do with our character and our contribution in the midst of those circumstances. And so he had a plan and he always was going to involve us in this plan And he realized that he needed to pray for us in these circumstances so that our character and our contribution to his plan to redeem the world would not be thwarted. And I just want you to know, if you don't remember anything else from this message, I really want you to remember this, is that nowadays, if the world is going to recognize God's power and experience God's plan of redemption, the world is going to want to see his people not falling apart. So I want to take a look at this scripture today and see what we can learn. It starts in John chapter 17, and we're going to look through uh, a lot of it, the, very, the whole the chapter, but I want to give you again some background context to this. Understand that the book of John's purpose was to make sure that people understood that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the book of, they call the seven signs, because he did seven miraculous signs to prove that he was not just a good man, not just a prophet or, or a teacher, but he was, in fact, divine, sent from God, he was God, and his power and his miracles proved that. And all of this was very, very effective to, some, to many people, but it was amazing that how many people saw the miracles that Jesus did and still did not believe he was who he said he was. And in this idea of this desire for people to know Jesus as the Son of God, he prayed a specific prayer just before he was about to die and and go to heaven. And the the responsibility for proclaiming this message of redemption was going to fall on his followers. He prayed this prayer, starting in verse 1. He said, after Jesus said this, the, the scripture says, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. In other words, the hour, meaning the time of his death by crucifixion. He knew in a few short hours he was going to be arrested, he was going to be tried, he was going to be beaten, he was going to be crucified, and he would die. He knew it was coming. He'd been prophesying it for several years. And yet, in this prayer, we notice he doesn't pray, get me out of here. Although later in the story, he does admit that he has those human feelings. Again, he feels what we feel. Scripture tells us he feels, he, he knows He has gone through everything that we have gone through, experienced what we have gone through, and yet without sin. But knowing what was to come and the weight of it, he didn't pray, get me out of here. Instead, he prayed, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. In other words, God, light me up so much that there is no doubt that I come from God on God's assignment. 
Furthermore, verse 2 says, For you granted him, Jesus was talking to his father, you granted him, your son Jesus, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. And just so everyone is clear on what he means, Jesus is saying, now this is eternal life. He says, you've given me authority that he might give eternal life, and this is what eternal life is, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's his mission in a nutshell. Now, this very verse itself is packed, and I don't have time to pull it all apart, except to draw your attention to two things. One, notice that he defines eternal life. In this world, people want to define salvation and, and, the, and how it comes about and how people can access it and who can access it. But here in the scripture, Jesus gives a very clear definition of eternal life. It's knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ who has revealed him. And second, notice his concern that people both in the present but in the future to come will find the saving knowledge of him. And he says a few more things, but skip down to verse 9. And it says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. Isn't that interesting? He's not so concerned about the world at large, but he's praying for those you have given me, his followers, for they are, are yours. Verse 10, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, his followers. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, but Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me so that, and here's the purpose of the protection he's talking about, they get out of, of pain and suffering? No. They escape the persecution that's coming? No. But what does he say? He says there in verse 11 that they may be one as we are one. Isn't that incredible? He's not praying for physical protection, but he's praying for something he deems much more important, unity. Ask yourself, if you knew that you only had a few hours to live, what would you pray for? It would probably be something very personal. It'd be something very, very important. And we see what is most important to Jesus, it's unity. At the end of his earthly life, the thing Jesus was most concerned about was his followers' unity and oneness. What does it mean to be one? That's a very popular concept. I, I, I'm, as I was preparing for this message, I thought of John Lennon of the, of the Beatles. And, and after he broke up with the Beatles, he, he, he sang a song, you know, imagine. Imagine if there were no possessions. Imagine if, there, if we, could, we could live as one. I find it really interesting that he coined that song, but he couldn't get along with his former bandmates. Um, you know, he, he talked about how, how if we only had these things, uh, we would be one, and yet he and his bandmates couldn't get along. So I'm not really sure how they could attain that. But it's a very popular concept, and people have been trying to define it and get to uh, oneness uh, since time immortal. But what does Jesus mean when he prays that they may be one as we are one? Well, let me explain what it is, and I want to explain some of the benefits of it. Sometimes it's not enough to just know what it is, but what is it in for us? Well, one of the, ben one of the benefits of oneness is that we're one in sharing possessions. In Acts chapter 4, we see the result of people who embrace this challenge and the transformational power of the gospel in, in, in allowing them to share possessions. It doesn't mean that there was no private property. Some people will make an argument for that. 
But what we see is that it meant that the gospel had transformed a group of people from diverse backgrounds. Even if you boil down the 12 disciples, they came from different places. One was was a zealot. He was an insurgent bent on defeating the Roman Empire. And alongside him was another disciple, Matthew, who was a tax collector, which meant he was an employee of that empire. And so you see just those two examples leap out of my imagination to see that this was not a group of people that were, were homogenous and exactly the same. They had a diverse uh, uh, group of backgrounds, and, and then it enlarged, and we saw that the, the people that followed Jesus uh, were transformed by the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, that they were drastically open-handed. They shared their homes, they shared their space, they shared money with anyone and everyone who had need. Uh, the power of the gospel in creating this oneness made them one in sharing their possessions. And number two, it also created a, a sense of freedom to share their problems. Galatians 6.2 describes it as bearing each other's burdens. As I was in the United States, I, I heard a story, it just blew me away, of in a region of the Midwest, an enormous farming region of the U.S., tw- uh, several decades ago, there was a crisis. Farms were failing. Farms were losing uh, farmers were losing their land and losing their livelihoods, but they were, they were of a culture that would not allow them to ask for help. And it became an incredible uh, social concern that farmers were committing suicide at an astounding rate because they absolutely refused to ask for help. But then when this individual who noticed this story went to the churches, he saw that there was an, uh, an incredible difference and that those who had found the gospel were liberated and felt a oneness, a freedom, not a, a freedom to ask for help. There was no shame in failure. There was no shame in weakness. They were willing to bear each other's burdens, and they were able to navigate that horrific time in their lives before taking the extreme out of taking their own lives. What an amazing benefit of oneness that we can share our burdens. Another benefit is that we are one, when we're in one, we're in one in sharing truth. Ephesians 4.15 talks about speaking truth in love. I think so many times we abuse this. We think that just telling somebody the blunt truth is loving. But you can tell the truth and still not be loving. But you cannot be loving without telling the truth. And the fact is the things that hurt us most in our lives, the habits we have, the practices we have that hurt us the most, that hurt others the most, are the issues so often we can't see ourselves. And we need someone else to bring it to our attention. This is hard. It takes courage and it takes love. But what an incredible benefit that I can be in a community where someone loves me enough to tell me the truth and helps me to break a habit or a pattern in my life that is not just hurting myself but hurting others, And but someone is willing to come alongside and help me get free of that. That is what oneness is, and that's a benefit of it. And fi- finally, number four, one, in sharing failure. I mean, stop and think about two of the greatest leaders of the church, Paul and Peter. We, we see their accomplishments. We see what the amazing things that they did in the New Testament. But don't forget that they had a past just like everyone. And Paul, before his conversion, jailed, tortured, and killed Christians. And yet at his conversion, he was welcomed into the community who probably had felt his persecution personally. They had either been persecuted by him themselves or they had had family members who had suffered and perhaps been jailed and died because of the actions Paul had taken. And yet, this community, transformed by the gospel, welcomed one who had such a horrible past and probably never would have felt able to achieve forgiveness on his own, and yet was welcomed into that community. It doesn't matter your past. The power of the gospel and the power of a gospel community allows you to be one 
of us. Peter, as well, the most flawed, the most failure-prone disciple of Jesus, was told that in spite of all this, he was going to be an incredible leader. And it's only in an authentic Christian community can failure be turned into triumph. We don't invite you to get perfect before you join us. We invite you to join us so that through the power of Christ, you may be made perfect in him. Now, the question is, why would we strive for, for, why would we want to preserve, cultivate, or pray for unity and oneness? I'll tell you this. It's because Jesus knew what was at stake. Jesus knew that as long as his followers, the body of Christ, were in sync with him and with the Heavenly Father, they would make an eternal impact on the world. But if they got divided, if they got splintered, if they allowed fear to divide them in any way, shape, or form, everything he had preached and taught and modeled and died for would falter and die out. How do I know? Because Jesus warned us. And furthermore, he prayed, not just for those disciples, but he prayed for you and for me in years to come. He said in verse 20, he said, my prayer is not for them alone. My prayer is not just for these disciples that I know just a few hours are going to fall asleep when I ask them to pray with me. When, when I get arrested, they're going to scatter to the four winds. The, the one, my, one disciple that said he would never leave me, that he would die for me, was going to deny me at when a little girl challenged if he was a follower of Jesus. So my prayer is not just for these weak followers alone, but my prayer is for, for those who will believe in me through their message, for these future generations, that all of them, that's a powerful phrase, black, white, Indian, Kosa, Zulu, Khoi, Afrikaans, English, American, you name it, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, privileged, disadvantaged, married, single, divorced, South African, expatriate, anyone watching this message today, that my prayer is that those who believe in me, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I are one, that you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world, catch this, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you notice that? His prayer for oneness had nothing to do with us. His prayer for oneness had nothing to do with stop the persecution, stop the pain, stop. No, no, no. His prayer had nothing to do with us but what he wanted to do through us. Can we pause for a moment and ask ourselves, how often do I pray for what Jesus prayed for? How often are my prayers as similar to the prayers that Jesus prayed? I'll be honest that when when and if threatened with life-threatening situations or even comfort-threatening situations, I do not naturally pray for what Jesus prayed for. And my question is, what would happen if you and I prayed this prayer found in the book of John more often? I wonder what, how our world would be a different place. As impossible as it sounds, Jesus was convinced that unity was mission critical. Although impossible, it was imperative. It wasn't an add-on. It wasn't an, we, an idea that we ought to, to, to be unified. We ought to be intentional instead to ensure that there is unity in the church. But it doesn't come naturally, does it? I mean, we only know what we know. We, we, were, we were raised by who we were raised with. We were influenced by the, that, that, that influence. We were taught what we were taught. And we tend to run to our familiar corners, politically, relationally, ethnically, you name it. On our own, in our own power, by our own efforts, when we get afraid, that's what's going to happen, that we will be divided. But Jesus was explicit that his church was going to be so international, so diverse, so inclusive, so colorful, so, so status varied, that if there is any way they could remain one, it was going to happen 
How did he, how did he say it was going to happen? Verse 20 says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. I've, I'm going to give them the power that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know, he repeats it, then the world, after this happens, this unity, the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see that? Why would he pray for this? Because he's saying a lack of unity will ensure that our witness will not be effective. It doesn't take anything away from the credibility of the gospel. It does not take away from the power of God. But he says a lack of unity will ensure our witness will not be effective. On the other hand, when the world sees sees the unity despite this diversity, they may come to the conclusion that God actually did send Jesus to do what he said he would do. He would say, you know, there's many, many religions that have this claim of authority and this claim of truth, but we're seeing, we're seeing the outcome of people applying this truth. He was asking God to nudge the next generation to do what he had just commanded his disciples to do a few chapters earlier. Love one another as I have loved you. It was a new command, not a new suggestion. He gave this command so the world would know that, he, that they were his disciples. Everything dependent on their unity, not their politics, not their culture, not their language, not the bits and pieces, the negotiable bits and pieces of their worldview or their traditions. And guess what? This isn't just theory. This isn't just uh, a dream. But after the resurrection, it happened. The reason that we are here today, the reason North Place Church Durban exists today, the reason that the, the Christian church exists in every country of the world despite ethnic groups, despite languages, despite anything and everything, after the resurrection, it happened. The reason we're here today is because 2,000 years ago, a diverse group of people obeyed Jesus' command and impacted the world. And it wasn't some kind of limited social experiment. When you read the book of Acts chapter 2, you see 120 people filled with the Holy Spirit spill out into the street, speaking multiple languages, and a wide range of people from faraway nations understood the message, and the scriptures say that in that day alone, 3,000 people were added to their numbers. In other words, the number of people who chose to unite under one promise for one purpose and one command grew larger and larger to the point that it changed the world. The authority of scripture and the power of its promises have not diminished since the day that event took place. But neither should our commitment to emulate the early church in unity and oneness. I'm not making light of what took place in our communities in recent days. Please understand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't feel the impact of what took place. But my prayer for us is that we as a community of Christ followers will make a consistent and conscious choice to agree with Jesus in this prayer found in John chapter 17, for unity in our body. Regardless of our diverse backgrounds, regardless of the way we have been treated in the past, regardless of who did what to whomever, as Christ followers, now we are no longer like the world. We are different. At least we ought to be. And I want you to heed the challenge that Paul said to a group of diverse people struggling with this. They, they had their doctrine. They knew what they believed, but they were struggling to put it into practice. And he said in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he said, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity, there it is, of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. What a challenge. What an inclusive statement. Unity isn't an option. Unity isn't a bonus. Unity isn't something extraneous. When faced with his last opportunity to pray for something, anything, Jesus demonstrated what concerned him most when he prayed for what he knew would matter most, unity. At the end of the day, don't forget, if the world is going to recognize God's power, they need to see his people not falling apart. So it's appropriate as we begin to close out this message about unity, it's time we take communion. You know, 1 Corinthians 11 is the chapter that we refer to when we take communion. And I find it really interesting when you understand the context of 1 Corinthians. It was an incredible church, full of power, demonstrations of power, Pentecostal power. But the number one concern Paul tackled at the beginning of the book was unity or the lack of unity. And he, he goes through the entire book. It's an incredible book, a practical theology of what unity really looks like in practical circumstances. But here in chapter 11, he talked about communion and communion as something that brings us together rather than allowing us to be separated from it. And it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 33, I would invite you to have some bread and some juice and to participate with me. And it says, for I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you and you and you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can we take the bread together? He said, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the juice together. Let's pray as we remember what the Lord did for each of us and also be reminded that what the Lord did for us, he did for somebody else. And because he, what, of what he did, he allows you and I, regardless of our diverse backgrounds, to be brothers and sisters. No longer are we members of a family, although that is our history long ago, but now we are part of a new family. And our oneness, our unity, is what the world is demanding to see in order to be the proof of God's power, the power of his broken body, the power of his shed blood, gives us the hope that we have, that we have the power to be one and therefore to be an effective witness to the world. Let's pray for that today. Father, I just thank you so much for this beautiful illustration of your sacrifice and the command to do this regularly in remembrance of what you have done. Scripture is very clear that I was not worthy of your sacrifice. I was not worthy of you giving your life for me, but you chose to do it. While I was a sinner, you died for me. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the hope of salvation, the hope to know you and to know my Heavenly Father and to be welcomed into that family. But Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that, Lord, also you included me. That power and that promise, Lord, involves anyone else. And I pray that as we have taken the bread and taken the cup today. I pray that we would remind it of the motivation the Apostle Paul had for the writing that. 
because there was a group of people struggling to be one, very diverse in their backgrounds, very diverse in their, their ethnic uh, origins, very diverse, Lord, in their, their fiscal conditions. But, and they were succumbing to the fear of, of mixing with those not like them. And you commanded them, Lord, to be one as you are one. So, Lord, I pray that as we have taken this, these elements today, may we be reminded, Lord, of your prayer, that you desire that we be one, that we would be one as you are one, and therefore prove to the world, Lord, that you are real. I ask, O oh God, for your forgiveness for those times where we have not been effective in this. I pray for everyone that is watching this message, Lord, that is hurting and tempted to succumb to fear, to pull back, to pull away, to isolate, to alienate because out of fear. I pray that, Lord, your power and your faithfulness, Lord, will overcome fear and cause us to pull together, to be one, and to reap the benefits of oneness that the world may know, that the world may know. The world wants to know, oh God, that, Lord, the power of your name, and they want to see your followers not falling apart. Unite us, bind us, empower us, and glorify your name through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We just thank you so much, North Place Church for being with us today. We know this isn't ideal. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. We look forward to being with you together face-to-face, unified, celebrating what God has done. And we hope that this happens very soon. So pray with us. Hold tight. Be watching social media for updates on the construction taking place. It's exciting. And just know that as soon as we can, we're going to be back together again, celebrating what God has done together. And let's give glory to God for that. Until then, keep coming back online, staying connected, looking after one another, and we look forward to being with you again. God bless you today. We love you. Have a great day.